Hi, welcome to episode 654 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I'm pulling very low in South Carolina. But if I can only take Guam, I got this in the bag. Every month on the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four. Today, it's Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 19. Point of Origin, Part 6. Foregone Conclusion. Published in February 2020 by Dan Slott and Sean Izaksi. And so to start with, I should say spoiler warning, which I've never said before on this podcast, but this issue just came out last week. Inexplicably, the story starts in Oklahoma on the Kiwazi Reservation. Roxon, the oil company, has set up some oil rigs on the reservation. Well, that's not going to go over too well. But this highfalutin Native American dude in a suit, he comes along and says that this is not sacred land, and they've made a good deal with Roxon. The man in the suit is surrounded by what I guess is a lawyer and some very thuggish-looking dudes. But then Wyatt Wingfoot arrives on a flying jet cycle. I wonder where he's going to come down on this. Wyatt says that he can settle it, but the locals are like, Oh, the superstar of the Kawizi tribe is here, very sarcastically. One Roxxon guy smiles and says, It's the tribal leader that gets things done. An older local man says, More like the tribal leader who's never here. Now, you know, they can't let Roxxon build these oil rigs and then take them away. That would make them like, you know, Indian givers. Okay, I can't say that, can I? A local geologist jumps in and says that Roxxon is drilling too deep. There's a maze of subterranean passages underground, and if they disturb them... Oh, and in typical comic book style, just as they say that, we see what happens if they disturb them. The ground starts shaking and crashing down around them. Wyatt jumps over to rescue this hot geologist lady, because... Of course he does. She's like, you're so large, get off me. Boy, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. They look down into the, uh, into the hole in the ground and they see a bunch of eyes looking up out of the darkness. This Roxxon security guy pulls out his gun and says, stay back, I I'm warning you. Wyatt grabs his arm and says, tells him he shouldn't shoot first. And then a bunch of black demon arms come up out of the ground and grab everybody. I guess he should have shot first. Wyatt hits his FF signal device. Wait, is this, is he like the Fantastic Four's Jimmy Olsen? Ah, but the Fantastic Four are 44 light years away. Ah, oh, 44, how did, I how did I just notice that? On the planet Spire, I hope this is the last issue where I have to say that stupid name, Planet Spire. So the giant tower of oversight lies in ruins. The people of the capital city are pissed off. Pissed off at the Fantastic Four. The FF are in the middle of the street, protected by one of Sue's force fields, surrounded by an angry mob. You know, I wish I had force field powers like that. I get surrounded by angry mobs all the time, like every time I release a new episode. People are screaming at the Fantastic Four, telling them that they're the worst telling them to go home. Inside the bubble with the Fantastic Four is Sky, the member of the Unparalleled, who was selected to be Johnny's soulmate by some weird 
eye of fate garbage. They don't seem to question the accuracy of the system. Maybe it's similar to the algorithm that recommends videos on YouTube. No, I don't want to watch a Joe Rogan video. Stop recommending tiny house videos. And why oh why do you think I'd want to watch James Corden's carpool karaoke? I'd rather eat shit. Sky tells Johnny she has something to say. Sadly, she says that he should go home. The people of Spire clearly do not want him here. Johnny seems taken aback. Tell me, I didn't come here all the way for nothing. Wait, the Fantastic Four literally came to Spire for nothing. No reason at all other than, hey, it's 44 light years away. Next, we see some of the unparalleled uh, digging the overseer in his purple and green Lex Luthor armor suit out of the rubble. He screams out, Richards, face me. Answer me for your crimes. Reed hears this and assumes that the overseer is talking to him. Isn't that a bit sexist? Sue's last name is Richards, too. But anyway, Reed faces the overseer, who is a great deal bigger. And Reed is like, Overseer, you tried to kill my family. What is this? First, there's the airing of grievances. Next, feats of strength. Does Spire celebrate Festivus? So Reed attacks the Overseer, and he goes on about like how all these years he thought that he was to blame for disfiguring his friend, for exposing his wife to cosmic rays that made his wife almost die in childbirth twice, for making it easy for his brother-in-law to get unlimited pussy anytime he wants. Okay, Reed didn't actually say that last one. Reed is like, I wasn't wrong about the shields all along. Huh. That seems to get the exact heart of why this retconning sucks. This absolves Reed and the rest of the Fantastic Four from any and all responsibility for what happened to them and what happened to Ben. That would be like if it turned out that the crook that Spider-Man let get away in Amazing Fantasy 15 was only the twin brother of the one who killed Uncle Ben and not the same person, thus absolving Peter Parker of any responsibility for what happened. The Overseer attacks back, saying that he had no choice. He had to turn his world into a land of freaks just to stop the menace of the Fantastic Four. And on the next page, ah, some serious bullshit. Reed mentions that he's been working to understand cosmic rays for years. The Overseer says he's been studying cosmic rays for years as well. Well, this is like finding out both their mothers are named Martha. They immediately stop fighting and they decide to work together. Reed mentions that thing that was developed for Ben, the serum that turns him to normal for a day or two a year, and suggests that they share that with the people of Spire. Ben tells everyone about the serum, and King Scrum says, You lousy two-faced piece of garbage. You said all that mattered was who he was inside. Whoops, Ben just got busted. The guy from the Unparalleled with Metal Arms seems enthusiastic about this serum as well. Johnny looks around, but he doesn't see his soulmate slash not soulmate, Sky. So later at the Hall of Heroes, they're using this serum method or whatever it is, whatever you call it, to turn some of the monsters back into people. But then, Elementa of the Unparalleled arrives with a mob of, for some reason, 
all African Americans. Or I guess African Spiridians. Okay, that doesn't work either. So anyway, Elementa puts forth the theory that the people of Spire are being tricked by the Fantastic Four. And that after he takes away everyone's powers, the FF will easily destroy them all. Sue asked Reed, Do you have a cure for that? Just joking around, like, pretty unconcerned about Elementa and his mob. Johnny's still looking around, but he says he feels like he's being watched. Well, his soulmate slash not soulmate, well, she can fly. I assume she's watching from above. I guess nothing comes of this angry mob. I don't know why that was even a, a scene. Later, Sue and Ben are cleaning up the rubble, and they mention how Ben would like to get back to see his wife, Alicia. And then we get a brief glimpse of what Alicia is up to. She's at a fancy grand opening of one of her art exhibits. Sculptures of various heroes and villains, including one of Galactus. Now how the hell did Alicia get access to Galactus? To feel his face and find out what he looks like? Alicia's art career is by far the most unrealistic thing about the comic. And there's a lot of unrealistic shit in this comic. Back with Sue and Ben. Ben mentions the teleporter that Valeria and Franklin were working on and they built in a previous issue. And he hopes that they come using it in this situation. You know, I've liked the absence of Val and Franklin in this story. And no, they don't need to come along and say here. And then we see Valeria and Franklin back home, having a food fight with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. You know, he looks so sweet and innocent, but you just know that Devil Dinosaur instigated this. Meanwhile, Reed and Johnny are working to repair their rocket, and Johnny's talking about how happy and lucky he was to get hit with cosmic rays and get these superpowers. Like I said earlier, it gets him laid. But are these really great superpowers? Everyone would love to have Sue's powers, like those are the best. Invisible, force fields, all kinds of crazy stuff, but Johnny's? Sure, being able to fly would be nice, but you're on fire. Flames are going everywhere. If this person existed in real life, he'd be burning down shit left and right. He'd be a massive fire hazard that would be run out of town. So later, when the rocket's done, the FF are saying goodbye to the Overseer. This change in the Overseer, going from a crazed individual who craves the death of the Fantastic Four, to being a very friendly chap, it's so sudden and inexplicable. Sky finally returns to say goodbye to Johnny. He mentions they should take off their soulmate bracelets. Sky says no, they should leave them on. Why? She says to add a seat. She's coming with them on the rocket. Oh great, just great. Who didn't see that coming though? So Sky turns and says goodbye to all her friends in the unparalleled, including this one guy, Sidearm. Now Johnny thought that Sidearm had the hots for Sky. Turns out, he's her father. I guess it's a confusing Donald Ivanka type situation. So the five of them get into the repaired rocket. Reed says something about how they need to be cautious as explorers. They could change a world or break it. Sky says, and you weren't even trying with my world. I wonder how easy it would be to break yours. Everyone is like, huh? And then she starts laughing. It was only a joke. I don't think she would be a problem, 
I mean, she flies. Not really much of a superpower. It would be fun, but it's not very much use in fighting crime. Sarid says, it's on to the next adventure. Which I assume has something to do with the last page. Back at the Wiwazi Reservation, Wyatt Wingfoot and the rest of the Tribal Council are getting an angry message from the Mole Man, demanding that they return his people to him. Wyatt asks everyone how they should respond to this threat from the Mole Man. One of them suggests they call the Fantastic Four. Oh really? How did that old guy come up with such a great plan? Wyatt turns to ask some of the others, What do you three think? And we see he's talking to three yellow Moloid people. One of them is dressed in a t-shirt, head buried in an iPhone, but the other two seem to be wearing vaguely Native American garb. Cultural appropriation! Cancel, cancel, cancel! One Moloid says, Sure, why not? What could it hurt? Who are these Moloids? Are those the Future Foundation Moloids or the other Moloids? I don't know. Anyway, that's the end of the issue to be continued next time. And so now a few things that I liked about the issue. Actually, there's six things I liked about this issue. Six! Number one is I like the fact that it's finally over. Does that count? Number two, I like the fact that Franklin and Valeria are hardly in this story. Great. Just great. I love it. Number three, I like the art a lot. One artist, Sean Izaxi, probably my favorite of the handful of artists who have worked on volume, four, volume six. Pretty good. Number four, I like the inclusion of a subplot that leads to the, into the next issue. It feels like classic comic book storytelling from the old days. Number five, I am intrigued in seeing what happens to Skye next. What horrible fate will befall her now that she's hitched her wagon to Johnny Storm? Oh, something horrible, I hope. And number six. I do like the fact that this has something new in it. Lots of new characters, new, a new world, new stuff. Sometimes the FF gets boggled down in showing the same villains come back over and over again. I actually think it would, I would have liked this story a whole lot more if it didn't include a retcon of the Fantastic Four's origin. Other than that, it's pretty, pretty good. I like it. Now, a few things that I did not like about this issue. I didn't care for the ending, and the fact that the animosity between the Overseer and the Fantastic Four ended so abruptly. It really was a, my mom's name is Martha moment. And oddly enough, number two, I can't think of anything else. I guess I like this issue. On a scale of one to four, I give this issue a three. So next up on the Fantastic Forecast, last month I spun the Fantastic Wheel of Doom for the first time. And this is what I got. It's Fantastic Forecast Episode 654 Part 2. Today I'll be talking about the Fantastic Forecast Episode 417 from April 20th, 2015. <laughs> 420. I just noticed. <laughs> you would have to be high to enjoy that particular issue of the Fantastic Four. Or this podcast for that matter. Yes, today it's a podcast about a podcast. Here I am from almost five years ago. Hi, welcome to the Fantastic Forecast, episode 417. I'm Dave Elliott, and I feel like a podcaster reborn. Today, 
Fantastic Four, issue 417. Okay, okay. Fantastic Four, number one, Ugh. from November 1996. Renaissance, plot and pencils by Jim Lee. Script by Brandon Choi. Ah, uh, April 2015. Season 14 of The Celebrity Apprentice had just finished, and the host of that insipid reality game show had a particularly strange career move in mind. Meanwhile, the owner of a pizza parlor child sex ring also announced her candidacy for the president. Did that turn out to be true? Uh, who makes up that shit? Duke won the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. Fast and Furious 7 was the number one movie. The number one TV show not counting football, was The Big Bang Theory. The number one comic was Marvel's Star Wars 4. And that month, I recorded a little podcast called Fantastic Forecast, episode 417, which was the very first episode in which the episode number did not match the issue number. Ah, good old volume 2 number 1. The very first reboot. I cannot believe. I spun the wheel and then ran a, ran a random number generator and came up with this. Possibly my least favorite issue of the Fantastic Four of all time. And to make matters worse, it's a double-sized issue. I am so unlucky. I specifically remember when this issue came out in 1996. I didn't know much about it beforehand other than Jim Lee was going to be drawing it. I was in college at the time and I had access to the internet at the computer labs, but I don't think there was much in the way of comic book news available online back then. I remember going to the comic book store, picking it up, and as I flipped through it, I slowly realized what was going on. They were starting over. I had seen DC do this with Crisis, but this was a friggin' reboot in the Marvel Universe. Oh, I was so disgusted. I put the book down, not buying it, that issue made me quit reading the Fantastic Four after, like, over ten years. I only finally read that issue when I got it for this podcast five years ago. Sure, there's been worse issues of the Fantastic Four, really, like the entire She Thing run, but those were so bad they were good. This is just very bland, unoriginal, annoying as hell because for the first time ever, Marvel was chucking out continuity and starting over like some crappy DC comic. I'm glad it didn't stick and the original continuity came back. Now this was an odd podcast. I talked for several minutes about the reboot before I even started talking about the issue itself, which is unusual. By the way, you can tell the difference between me of 2015 and the me of 2020 because I have background music playing in the old podcast from 2015 and I'm not adding any background music to the new stuff from 2020. This issue seem, very much seems like the inspiration for what would later become the Ultimate Universe. Also significant is the fact that this is the first time the Fantastic Four was cancelled and rebooted with the number, number one issue, something Marvel will continue to do over and over and over again. Not with, not with just the Fantastic Four, but all their comics, but especially with the Fantastic Four. This comic and the entirety of Volume 2 takes place in some alternate universe created by Franklin Richards? His first of many, I think. A universe where everything is beautifully drawn, but everything that happens is boring. 
Page one shows the rocket with Reed, Sue, Ben, and Johnny getting bombarded with cosmic rays, but it turns out that's not the case. But they're not. The an intercom goes off. Ben gets a call. It turns out this is not the infamous ride into space. We had to wait a long time for this for that to happen in this issue. Ben is just using the flight simulator. One of the supervisors says about Ben, it's no surprise that he never advanced beyond being a test pilot. Isn't being a test pilot like way, way, way more advanced than being a normal pilot? If you're out there successfully flying experimental planes, you should be okay with flying a normal plane or a space shuttle or whatever. Reed defends his old friend, saying that had he not, had he not been wounded in the Gulf War, he might have become an astronaut. Gulf War? They updated World War II to the Gulf War, and now the Gulf War is out of date. They should have just said, oh, he was injured in the war. One of the nice things about being an American is there's always another war around the corner. They go out to where the gigantic spaceship is called Excelsior. It's on the launching pad. Someone runs out and hands Ben a cell phone and says there's a call from Susan Storm. We learn that Sue is... His boss, she works at the Storm Foundation. She says she's flying out to Central City to check on the project. And Johnny's coming, too. He wants some memorabilia from the Excelsior to put in his casino. They run the Storm Casinos. This is also weird. So there's a knock at the door. <clears throat> and in comes Sue's Uncle Matthew. Okay, so they try to make Sue sound like some big shot corporate leader to make her sound a little more successful and capable than her 1961 counterpart. And then, they totally negate that by revealing that she inherited all her wealth. And she's just another entitled, rich asshole who did nothing to deserve her station in life. Oh God. Sue Storm. She's Ivanka Trump. Matthew introduces her to Special Agent Wyatt Wingfoot and says that now, Wyatt Wingfoot will be running Project Excelsior. Yes, he's in charge of the Excelsior Project, not the casinos. So Matthew tells Sue that these orders came directly from the President of the United States. Hey, we ought to get that white Wingfoot fella in there, leading a Project Excelsior. Next, we see a female reporter, Colleen Chang, who works for the American Tabloid. Yes, that's the name of the magazine, or the tabloid, the American Tabloid. They're not even trying to come up with a name that sounds real. And this is one of my least favorite tropes in all of comics. Using a news reporter to give lots of exposition to the reader. Oh, I hate it so much. It seems like far more information than we need to know. And here's how I described it in 2015. Back near Central City, a reporter, Colleen Chang, is on TV saying that there are rumors that the government is working on a top secret project nearby to make contact with alien life. And this comes as a stellar anomaly was discovered just outside our solar system. Reed and his co-worker are watching this on TV. The co-worker turns it off, calling it hogwash, even though she was pretty damn close to reporting the truth, which is what Reed says. What she doesn't know is that Reed thinks the stellar manifestation could be an emerging subspace wormhole that serves as a conduit for subatomic particles. Reed and this other guy are in the lab doing science stuff, and... They add some additional exposition as to what the reporter laid out. And believe me, I left out a lot when I first did this podcast. And I'm leaving it out now. Suffice to say, Reed thinks all this might lead to an ability to contact alien life. 
The other scientist guy expresses concerns about Major Grimm. Speaking of Major Grimm, he's out in the desert, driving the jeep to the spaceship base. He mentions that they don't have paved roads because I guess Jim Lee decided to draw the jeep on an unpaved road. Now why would they build some kind of spaceship base on an unpaved road? And then Ben's jeep almost gets hit by a Lamborghini. Now why would a Lamborghini, a car that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, be on an unpaved road? The woman puts down the, the window and she says, Hi, handsome, to Ben, and ask if he can help her find her way. Ben is like, it'd be my pleasure. Ben would be a total idiot to not see that this, this was some kind of obvious setup. And then in the driver's seat, we see that the driver is Johnny Storm, which I described as follows. Well, we see someone else in the Lamborghini driving. It's Johnny Storm, who laughs at Ben and says, Dream on, old man. You'll never be able to keep up with... Tiffany, she likes her, she likes her men young and her cars fast. But then again, don't we all? Ben yells back, Johnny Storm, I should have known it was you. Always the boy playing with a man's toy. Oh, <laughs> good job there, Brandon Choi. Already developing some homoerotic playfulness between Ben and Johnny. So they both drive off toward the base and they start trying to race each other with the Lamborghini spinning out of control and crashing. Now, two cars racing on an unpaved road. One is a Jeep, the other is a Lamborghini. I'm putting my money on the Jeep. By the way, that's a perfect sequel to Ford versus Ferrari. Jeep versus Lamborghini. So at the Central City Airport, I'm surprised they kept Central City as a location. It's a phony DC type place and pretty much forgotten in the Marvel Universe since. Sue arrives on a private jet, Ben is there and gives her a big hug, and she introduces him to White Wingfoot. Later, Reed is upset to find out that he's no longer leading the project. White Wingfoot arrives and says the mission is too dangerous because of some stellar anomaly. Reed says it doesn't pose any danger. I don't care. Your opinion now is irrelevant, Dr. Richards. Wow. Great work on White Wingfoot here. They've turned him into a dick. They've also turned Johnny into a spoiled, little, rich little asshole. Not sure that's an improvement. Now, Ben wants to clobber Wyatt, and for the second issue in a row, Reed holds back Ben and tells him that violence won't solve anything. Reed must not know this is a comic book, where unlike real life, violence solves everything. Wyatt says that Reed and Ben are a threat to the operation and ordered them to be locked up. I don't understand why they would turn Wyatt Wingfoot into a government goon. I guess all this is to further justify why Reed and the team steal the rocket. Which is something that kind of gets glossed over in the original origin story. They break into the base, steal the rocket, crash the rocket, and face no consequences. So anyway, Wyatt orders Sue and Johnny to input these launch codes into the system, which they do. Then someone says the storms will be confined to quarters. Johnny says he's going to call his lawyer, and Wyatt orders someone to punch Johnny in the face. One of the other scientists says that he's going to call the police. So Wyatt zaps the dude in the back with some kind of electronic brass knuckles, killing the guy. Wyatt orders Sue and Johnny taken away, and then he contacts his boss on the communicator, telling him that everything is going as planned. His boss is, take a guess, 
It's Doctor Doom. Wyatt and his men don't really work for S.H.I.E.L.D. They work for Doctor Doom. Now that Reed, Sue, Ben, and Johnny are their prisoners, I guess Doom will be sending them back in time to look for Blackbeard's treasure. One can only hope. I think at this point, Doom is more interested in stealing that spaceship. I love the way I dramatically introduced Doctor Doom back then. It's Doctor Doom. In their jail cell. Handy that they have a full-on jail cell there at the airport slash spaceship base. Ben and Reed are locked up. They can see the spaceship Excelsior outside the window being loaded up with a nuclear bomb. Reed thinks they have a plan. They plan to blow up the stellar anomaly. Well, of course, why wouldn't they? I can just picture the solicitations for this issue back in the day. Jim Lee takes the book and the Fantastic Four have to stop Dr. Doom from blowing up a stellar anomaly. Excited. Johnny and Sue are being led by some armed goons walking right past Johnny's car. Johnny hits the remote of his car, and the lights and horns start going off, distracting the goons. With the two goons distracted, Sue and Johnny fight back. Johnny hits one guy in the face with what appears to be a lead pipe. I'm not sure where he got that from. Yeah, where did Johnny get that lead pipe? It's like in The Wizard of Oz when suddenly the Scarecrow has a gun. Sue and Johnny kick their asses, go inside and kick more asses. Of course these rich entitled spoiled rich corporate brats are highly trained fighters. Of course! Sue goes in and frees Reed and Ben, and we get a big sloppy kiss between the two of them. And they say they have to stop the launch. And on the next panel, the four of them are getting into their astronaut suits. Ben points out how dangerous this is, but Johnny says they've already put their lives on the line and they should stay together. And for the second issue in a row, the four of them get together they stack their hands one on top of another, and they pledge to stay together. They hear the rumble of the Excelsior's engines. They look over, and they see it taking off. They want to get into space, too, to stop the Excelsior. I'm not sure why Reed is so dead set on saving that stellar anomaly from the getting nuked, but he is. Oh, no! Dr. Doom is going to destroy the stellar anomaly! We must risk our lives to save the stellar anomaly! So they decide to take the Excelsior prototype which doesn't have as much fuel as the Excelsior, or the same amount of shielding. Oh, you don't say. So they blast off, arrive at the Stellar Anomaly, where the actual Excelsior is already there. How did they just manage to replace the crew of the rocket ship at the last minute like that? I guess they all had understudies? By the way, Jim Lee has designed the shit out of these two spaceships. They look like ships from the Shire Empire, more than experimental Earth ships. I like how the original FF rocket looked just like a plain simple rocket, not a highly advanced spaceship from an alien race. Seems more seems more plausible. They detect space subspace activity. Reed included a subspace activity detector on this ship, but crappy weak shields? Okay. Reed should have prioritized better. Anyway, it's like someone is trying to communicate with them. And then there's a bunch of radiation. Too much for the prototype's shields to stop. They see something coming out of the subspace distortion field. And the Excelsior drops its nukes. The nuclear bombs explode, and the prototype ship gets bombarded with radiation. The ship starts to break apart. Ben turns the ship back into Earth's atmosphere. Everyone heads for the escape pods. Wait a minute. I thought the stellar anomaly was on the edge of the solar system. Right here, it's like right in orbit over Earth. So Ben turns the ship back into Earth's atmosphere. Everyone heads for the escape pods, and the ship crash lands in the Caribbean Sea. 
So in this version of the story, the four of them land in four separate escape pods. Why would the ship have four individual escape pods? It seems like a waste of resources. Instead of, why don't they just have one escape pod that holds four people? Reed did a terrible job at designing the ship, but then again, it is a prototype. We see evil Wyatt Wingfoot, who seems pleased with these developments. First, we see Johnny emerge from the wreckage, and unlike the creators of this book, he's on fire. He says that he feels like some kind of human torch, and he flies over and he lands in the water to put out his flames. He gets out of the water, and he sees this long flesh-colored tube on the ground. So Johnny picks it up and he says, It feels like flesh, warm to the touch. Which is a weird thing for him to say, because Johnny is wearing gloves. How the hell can he tell it feels like flesh if he's wearing gloves? He wonders what the fleshy tube is connected to. Usually when I say something like that, I'm talking about Ben. And Johnny goes on over to find, at one end, a hand. Pretty gross. And then on the other end, he finds the rest of Reed laying on the beach. Of course, we know how the rest of the story goes. Reed has a stretchy body. Sue has the invisible powers. Ben turns into a rock monster. Sue is running for help after seeing the ship is about to blow up. And she finds Ben and he, and he says, I've turned into a monster. Some kind of thing. Jim Lee's version of the thing is huge. Massive. And, but then again, who doesn't like a bigger thing? She tells Ben, Wait! There's something behind you! Look out! And Ben says, What the? Johnny and Reed hear Sue scream off in the distance and they run that way. The ground starts to collapse under their feet and they slide down this tunnel into the ground. They hit the bottom, they look up to see they're surrounded by these little little yellow men, the subterranean moloid people. They pick up Reed and Johnny and carry them through the caves. They get to this big cavern where they see Sue and a big orange orange rock monster locked up in chains. Of course, they start to break free. They fight with the Moloids and underground monsters. And during this fight, I originally noted, the big creature is back, still hungry to eat Sue. That was a common thing back in the early days of the FF. Bad guys wanting to eat Sue. And Sue mentions the quantum drive, which was about to explode. And then the leader of the subterranean people show up. He says that the only thing they're going to do now is perish. That's what happens to trespassers. He introduces himself as the Mole Man, and he says that he has the power to bring all of mankind to its knees. I do like Jim Lee's Mole Man. He looks a lot more sinister and dangerous than old school Mole Man. Still, I doubt he has the power to bring mankind to its knees. And so, it's the Mole Man, and that's the end of the issue. On the original podcast, I go back and mention the things that I didn't like about the issue, which is pretty much the same stuff I said earlier in this podcast. And this is episode 417, which is painful me to, for me to listen to. Now, I'm tempted to go back and re-record all my original podcasts in a more professional podcasting voice like this. Hi, welcome to episode 417 of the Fantastic Forecast. So that was a double-sized episode clocking in at 24 minutes. And this episode is a uh, fast approaching 40. So now before we finish, it's time for my favorite part of the show, the spin of the wheel, the fantastic wheel of doom. The wheel hasn't changed since last month. We still got the 12 same items. Number one, 
Issues 1 and 2 of the Fantastic Four World's Greatest Comic Magazine, which was a 12-issue miniseries from 2001-2002. Number 2, Fantastic Four Secret Invasion Issues 1, 2, and 3, a 3-issue miniseries that ties into the big Secret Invasion crossover. The third thing on the wheel, Issues 1 and 2 of Super Villain Team-Up, a short-lived series from the mid-70s featuring Doctor Doom. The fourth thing on the list is Challengers of the Fantastic, a Marvel DC amalgam book from 1997 that combines the Fantastic Four with the Challengers of the Unknown. Number five, from 1999, another DC Marvel book, Fantastic Four Superman. It's like a 64-page graphic novel. Number six, issues one and two of the Invisible Woman miniseries from last year. Number seven, Fantastic Four X-Men. Issues 1 and 2 of that 4-issue miniseries from 1987. Number 8, the top 10 hottest (laughs) Fantastic Four villains. I'll be ranking what I think is the 10 most attractive FF villains of all time. That's that's weird. Number 9, episode 1 of the Fantastic Four radio show from the early 70s featuring the voices of Stan Lee and Bill Murray. Number 10, Marvel 2-in-1, a random issue. If I land on this, I'll go to a random number generator that picks a number between 1 and 100, and whatever number it selects is the issue of Marvel 2-in-1 I'll do. Number 11, Fantastic Four, random issue. If I land on this, I'll stick 635 numbers into the random number generator and see what comes up, Eh, just like I did last month. Hopefully it's not 417 again. And if it is, I'll do it again. Number 12 is, it's the last Fantastic Four story from 2007 by Stanley and John Romita Jr. If I land on this, it will be the last Fantastic Four story I ever do on this podcast because if this comes up on the wheel, that is the last podcast I'll ever do. Very high stakes here. The future of the podcast is on the line with selection number 12. So now it's time. I got my wheel ready. Gonna spin the wheel. Spinning. We got out here closing in on Challenger's Fantastic 2-in-1 random last Fantastic Four story. Oh! Invisible Woman. Oh, it came so very close. Ah, so coming up on the next episode, I'll be doing Invisible Woman, issues one and two from last year. Oh man, you would not believe how close. Very, very close. I wish it was was a video podcast. You would not believe how close it came to the last Fantastic Four story. And so that is the end of the episode. Coming next time, it's Fantastic Four, volume six, number 20, and Invisible Woman, number one and number two. If you have any questions about the Planet Spire, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download episodes at iTunes and find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. <laughs>